Well, good morning, everybody. It is so good to see all of you. On my drive to church this morning, I passed by a DeLorean. Uh, for those of you who have never seen the Back to the Future movies, like that's the, the car that they use for the time machine. And I'm not a superstitious person, but I'm pretty sure this means it's going to be a great day. So I just want to start off there. Uh, I felt that that was actually like kind of appropriate. Back to the future, we're going back to the table. I know, super cheesy, but I just had to make the connection. Uh, this morning, we're going to be continuing our series, Back to the Table. And part of this is just we are returning. We're back. Many of us are back in person. And for those of you who are not able to join us yet, we love you. We miss you. We hope you're keeping safe and doing well. Uh, but for us, the, the centerpiece that, that unites us all, that brings us all together. It's not because we like the songs or even because of my preaching or anything else. The thing that unites us and brings us all together, the most important thing that makes us the church that we believe God has called us to be is the communion table. And this is a table that, that all we invite all who are followers of Jesus to come and to participate in. And this is a table uh, that, that connects us with and unites us with not just other Christians in the world right now, but all the way back throughout history, reaching way, way back to the first time this was celebrated with Jesus' disciples in an event we often call the Last Supper. And today, my, my goal or my desire with the sermon is simply to dive into and look at what, in a sense, inspired and, and kind of the driving idea, the why behind everything about why Christians, what initially started this being the centerpiece, the focal point of Christian gathered worship together. Uh, I remember hearing a story a, a number of years ago from a woman. I, I'm th pretty sure it's apocryphal, but it sounds better when I tell it like the first person. So this woman, she, uh, she was saying that her mother used to cook a delicious meatloaf. And she said she did this she'd make this amazing meatloaf, and so she would, she would put it in the oven and bring it out. And as she'd bring it out, she would cut off the ends on either side, put it on their serving dish, and the family would eat it. And this recipe got handed down, and so the daughter, as she grew up, she began to start to make this same meatloaf as well for her family. And she would take it out of the oven and cut off the ends and, and serve it to her, put it on the dish and serve it to her family. And one time, her husband had to kind of look over the second part of the meal, and he wasn't familiar with the recipe. She wrote it all out, what he needed to do. And as he was going through, and he cut off the ends and put it on the dish and brought it to the, to the family to eat. And afterwards, he asked her, why do you cut the ends off? of the meatloaf. In fact, I kind of like the ends of the meatloaf. Why aren't we getting to put those out there? And she said, well, actually, I, I don't really know. It's just what my mom did. And so fortunately, she was in a situation where her mom was still alive. So she went and she talked to her mom, asked her, and she said, why do you cut the ends? Why is that part of the recipe? And the mom simply said, oh, it's not part of the recipe. It was just happened to be the, for us, the serving dish that I had was smaller than the baking dish. And so I put it in the oven, I get it out, and then to get fit into that dish, I'd have to cut the ends off and put it out there to serve. And so we laugh, it's funny, but how true is that for so many different things in our lives? We don't really think about why we do them, the different actions that we take part in. And I actually would say that that's often very true for the communion table. We don't really think about the why, it's just sort of something that we do. And now there's incredible, formative, important things that we do when we come to the communion table together as a community that we think are worth doing, even if you have no idea what's going on. But to this morning, I want to explore the why. Uh, theologian and philosopher Dallas Willard, he talks about how the familiar can make things unfamiliar. And essentially he's saying that when you get so used to doing something over and over again, sometimes you, you can become blind 
to what that thing is actually about or what's actually going on when you do that thing. And so my hope is that as we look at the communion table together this morning, as we explore, in a sense, one of the whys, and maybe the starting why, the thing that kind of initiated it, it will help bring new insights and it will help us see the table in a new light. And we're going to need to use the scriptures for this, so I invite you to open it up to Luke chapter 22. So if you have a Bible, whether you use like the hard copy or whether you have a digital version on your phone or device that you have with you, I invite you to open it up to there. We're going to be starting at verse 7, but before we do that, would you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, your word is a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. And as we come to you this morning, many of us, we come in places of just sort of a fog, just lots going on in our lives, lots of distractions, lots of good things that are just consuming our attention and our energy. Lord God, there's so much noise. We ask that as both as individuals and as a community, that you would quiet down our minds and our hearts and that we would hear you speak to us today. Where there are lies that we believe about our world, ourselves, and most significantly, lies that we believe about you, I pray that you would bring your truth and that it would set us free. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. All right, Luke chapter 22 is typically kind of given the title of being called the Last Supper. Verse 7, Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John saying, Go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. All right, so I want to just stop there. Jesus is in Jerusalem. His entire ministry has been on this trajectory leading him towards the cross, and he knows that his time has come, that he is going to ultimately suffer and die on the cross. And so he's been telling his disciples, he's been trying to get this into their minds, and often they are just completely, they just don't get it. They're just, it's not clicking for them. They are not understanding it. And so there's this event called the Passover. And in these, this particular event, it was an important holiday for the Jewish people. In fact, it was the most significant, not simply just holiday, but event that had happened in the history of the Jewish people. And every year, they would gather together in Jerusalem to celebrate it and to participate in this significant meal. Now, sometimes it's called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Sometimes it's simply just called the Passover. And those two things ultimately become interchangeable. They become interlocked. So if you see one and see the other, they are essentially talking about the same thing. The Passover is the first day, and the Feast of Unleavened Bread lasts the entire seven days. And this was an incredibly important event for the Jewish people. So uh, the city of Jerusalem had approximately about around the time of Jesus, they think somewhere between 30,000 to 50,000 people living there. But when Passover came around, well, one Jewish historian who lived around the time of Jesus, he said there was over 2 million people would come flock to the city. Now, most historians think that number is way off and think it's probably more around 200,000. 
But when you realize that the city of Jerusalem at the time of Jesus is approximately, is a little less than one square kilometer, I mean, that's a lot of people crammed into a very small space. Like social distancing, not possible in that particular environment. And so all these people would come, all these Jewish people from all over the area and from faraway countries would come to celebrate Passover. And at the very heart of Passover, it was about sharing a meal together. First you would go, you would take your Passover lamb, you would have it sacrificed at the temple, then you would take that lamb back with you and you would eat a meal together with your family. And so, I know for some of you, you've grown up in the church, you've heard these stories over and over again, you know exactly what I'm talking about, and for some of you, this is new and brand new. So I want to just go back, and we're going to look at the book of Exodus, and we're going to talk about what this Passover was all about, what actually happened with the Passover, why was this something the people of Israel went so out of their way to go and celebrate. So, uh, hold your spot in uh, Luke 22, we're going to come back to it. I want to invite you to go all the way back to Exodus chapter 3. So in uh, the, essentially Exodus begins, the people of Israel, they have have transplanted, they've moved to uh, Egypt. Uh, And that was originally for famine reasons. They went there because there was an abundance of food. Um, But as they had been there, this family, these people, this tribe of people, they began to grow and grow and grow. And as they started to grow, essentially the people of Egypt, and specifically the ruler of Egypt, his name was Pharaoh, began to become very intimidated. And as is so often the case with people who are in power, when they start to see other people, whether they're an individual or groups of people, start to become more powerful or start to succeed, um, start to, in this particular case, they were breeding, there was lots, they were having lots and lots of babies, they became, he became incredibly intimidated and fearful and living from a place of scarcity. And so his immediate response was not, oh, wow, these people, they're being blessed. Good things are happening. How can we celebrate and be happy for what's going on in their lives? Instead, the response is feeling threatened and scared. And so Pharaoh's immediate response is, okay, we need to stop these people because they're going to be powerful and they're going to take this place over. And so what they do is they burden them, they turn them into slaves. And then after that, they continue to grow and they continue to be successful. And so the next response is they actually, well, we're going to kill a whole bunch of their sons. Because by wiping out a generation of their males, we know that that's going to reduce their strength and their power and it's going to slow them down. And so the people in Israel, they are, or a people of Israel in Egypt are suffering. They're oppressed, they're mistreated, they're abused. And there's a man named Moses. And now we won't go too much into his backstory, but ultimately Moses, not your typical guy you'd think is being a leader. He's off in the wilderness and God shows up and speaks to him and says, Moses, I want to use you in a profound way. Here's what God says in Gen- or Exodus chapter 3, verse 7. The Lord said, speaking to Moses, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers and I am concerned about their suffering. So I've come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. So to begin with, God sees what's going on and he calls them my people. Notice that in verse 7. He says, my people. If you go through, you can actually just highlight that. These are the people of God's covenant. He is made with a man named Abraham. And the people, they're calling. It's not that God loves them more than he loves all the other people, 
but they have been given a specific calling, a vocation, a job to do in the world. They've been called to go and essentially be the conduit through which God's blessing is going to come to all people. And so he sees them suffering. He sees them being abused. And notice his response. He says, I have heard them crying. I'm concerned about their suffering. And I've come down to rescue them and bring them out. Now, it's important we realize this is, for us, uh, after 2,000 years of, of Christian, Christian influence in our culture, in our world, and even as much as our culture is drifting away from Christianity, so often we miss out on all of just these, these profound things that seem to, seem to carry on and on. But the idea of a God, a God who actually cares about the crying out of people in need, the idea of a God who is concerned about the suffering of people, and a God who actually cares enough to do something about it, I mean, that is a radical, revolutionary idea. So for the people of Israel, their understanding of who God is is that this is a God who hears the cry of the oppressed, of the downtrodden, of the abused, and this God does something about it. If you skip ahead to Exodus chapter 12. And so Moses goes to Pharaoh and he essentially challenges, actually he just simply says to Pharaoh, let these people go. Set them free. Stop abusing them. Stop mistreating them. Stop making them slaves. Let them go. And through this long process, Pharaoh is continuously, because when we've got something, we never want to let it go. And Pharaoh just continuously says, no, no, no. And occasionally he changes his mind only to flip back and just say, nope, I'm going to keep them. And if you go through and if you're familiar with the story, we don't have time to go through it all step by step. And if you go through and you read through it, it's a really disturbing story. There's all these different plagues that come upon Egypt. Essentially, God is continuously saying, Pharaoh, let them go. And so it, things like the river turning to blood and darkness and, uh, and frogs and locusts and all sorts of other things continue to happen over and over again. Each time, Pharaoh having the chance to set these people free, to stop abusing them and mistreating them, dehumanizing them, and yet he continuously refuses. Now for us, again, we read this and we hear it's kind of disturbing and messed up. And yes, it absolutely is to our modern ears. But to the ancient ears that would have heard this, what they are hearing is this battle between the one true God, the God of Israel, and what they would see as being the God of Egypt, Amun-Re, which Pharaoh was the embodiment of. In fact, if you were to go through and read through this in the original context, knowing something about Egyptian mythology at that particular time, you'll most likely find that throughout all of that, every single plague is actually essentially a shot at the, uh, the Egyptian cult, the, the, the different gods that they would worship, and specifically Re or Ra, the, the, the kind of the high-up sun god that they worshipped. And so we read through this and we just go, oh, that's messed up. But the original audience, they would read through this and they would just say, oh, wow, this is like, this is God, the one true God laying the smack down on Egypt's false gods. And this is, this is the one true God actually showing them, no, 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 this is who's actually in charge. Well, ultimately, it gets to a point where he's still not set the people free, and so we get to chapter 12. Uh, if you go to uh, chapter 12, verses 6 and 7, and so the command is, is that uh, Moses says, or God tells Moses to tell the people of Israel to go out and to take a lamb and uh, here, starting in verse says, take care of them until the 14th day of the month. 
when all of the members of the community of Israel, then they must slaughter them at twilight. So you've got to look after this lamb for a little while and then you need to put it to death, which for some people I realize is that's, that's just like your heart is aching right now. Um, then, they take, uh, uh, they, then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. Do not leave any of it um, till morning. If some of it is left till morning, you must burn it. This is how you are to eat it with your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. Eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. This is a day you are to commemorate. For generations to come, you shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord, a lasting ordinance. And so we have this story. God's essentially saying, now the moment has come. I'm going to lead you out into freedom. Pharaoh has had his chance to let you go, and he continuously refuses. Now you are going to step out into the new life that I created you for. And this is a defining moment for the people of Israel. It is a moment where they begin to understand who this God truly is, that this is a God, not just some far-off concept or theology, but rather this is a God who is engaged and active in human history. And so every year they are called to celebrate this event, this meal. And if you were to go through and look through just the different elements, every single part of this meal is about telling the story. It's about reminding them that this is the story that needs to shape you. This is core to who you are and understanding who you are. So if you would actually go through it, first off, they would talk about how there is this, there is this bitter herbs that you're supposed to eat. I've just got some parsley here. Uh, and the idea is that it, it reflects the bitterness that you were experiencing as you were enslaved in Egypt. And then there's this idea you're supposed to be eating the unleavened bread. And that actually ties in with them having to eat it in a haste. They're supposed to eat it essentially with their running shoes on. This is not a meal where you sit down and get comfortable because this is all about movement because God is doing something and he's going to be liberating you and setting you free and sending you out into the world. And so you don't have time to just sit down and just relax. This is a meal where you know you are going to be on your feet soon. In fact, you don't even have time to let the bread rise. That's why you need to use unleavened bread. And uh, it even talks about special requirements for how they would cook. Uh, I skipped over that part, but how they would cook and prepare the lamb. So they would roast the lamb, and they weren't supposed to remove the bones. Um, so I actually went to Longo's yesterday to just say, can you give me like a lamb shank with like the bones all in it? Um, and the guy looked at me like, yeah, we can't do that like without more than 24 hours notice. So I was like, okay, do you have anything? And they're like, well, we have a lamb chop. Um, so it's got like some bone in it. So I figured like that's it's close. But, but all of this meal is about communicating that God has done something profound. So if you go back to Luke chapter 22, Jesus is gathering with his disciples and they are going to celebrate this formative meal together. Now it's interesting to note, especially that Jesus does this this would typically be a meal that you would do with your family. And Jesus actually does this with his disciples. So for him, there's actually a breaking down of the different social barriers that you would have seen in their culture. Jesus is essentially saying, when you gather together and when we share Passover meal together, we are doing this 
as a family. Now, an interesting thing happens in this particular meal. There's, a, there's a, essentially a liturgy that they would follow, that they would work their way through. They would eat the various different things and, and recall and remember the story of God's liberating work in their lives, of setting them free, of leading them out of Egypt. But Jesus does this interesting thing. Uh, notice, I think we go to verse, let's go to 14. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table and he, heard to, he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. And after taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. And so Jesus takes this familiar meal that they would have eaten with their families every single year. But he pours into it this added significance, saying that this isn't just simply about an event that happened long ago, but this is actually about something that God is doing through me right here and right now. You know, Jesus uses this language. He talks about it when he talks about holding up the cup. He says, this is the new covenant in my blood. Now, it's important for us to remember that the Jewish people were considered to be God's covenant people. In fact, if you were to go back to Exodus chapter 24, if you want, you can look there real quick. It talks about them essentially establishing their covenant. What began with Abraham becomes a corporate communal experience. So it says this, Then he sent young Israelite men, and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as fellowship offerings to the Lord. Moses took half of the blood and put it in bulls, and the other half he splashed against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it to the people. They responded, We will do everything the Lord has said. We will obey Moses then took the blood, sprinkled it on the people and said, this is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. And actually the language there around sprinkled um, is actually probably more appropriate is just simply through. So there's almost this image of all of these people gathering and Moses just splashing, just throwing the blood on them, reminding them that they have been made a part of God's covenant. And there's more to it than just simply, for them, it was simply more than just being liberated, set free from Egypt. This was about what they had been set free for. Now, one of the things that you'll know if you follow the story of Israel is that they achieve incredible heights. They get kings and they become this powerful, influential country, even though they're so very, very small. People from all over the world are coming to see how they live and act But very quickly, they begin to go astray. They begin to forget the promises, the covenant, the the original calling that they were given to be as a people of God. They begin to look to the other nations and go, hey, we want to do it more like they do it. We want to be more like them. In fact, they actually begin to be oppressive and domineering. And in the same way that Egypt began to mistreat them, and to neglect them, and to take advantage of the poor and the oppressed, they begin to do that as well. And ultimately, it leads them into disaster. 
In fact, when Jesus and his disciples are sharing this meal, it was undoubtedly on everyone's mind because they were a people who still felt like they were being oppressed and mistreated by the Roman Empire. It was almost as if God did this amazing radical thing way back in the Exodus, but they were all thinking, God, when are you going to do this again now? Now, Jesus here, he is alluding to a prophet who is speaking to Israel in their time of just kind of going off the rails. And here is what he quote, or essentially we can read this in Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31. And this is talking about a new covenant. Israel already had their old covenant, the covenant that had been established between God and Abraham, between Moses and the entire community. But then Jeremiah begins to talk about saying, no, 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 wait, there's, there's something else that we need. There's another kind of covenant that is coming that's necessary. Jeremiah writes this, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor to say to one another, know the Lord, because uh, they will all know me and the least of them to the, from the least of them to the greatest declares the Lord for I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. Essentially, Jeremiah is alluding to this fact. He says, it doesn't matter how free you think you are. It doesn't matter who is actually in power. He's speaking to Israel and, and ultimately I think he's speaking to all of us when he says, the biggest problem is not just who's in power, but is also who your heart has been captured by, who you are enslaved to. I mean, for Jeremiah, he says, wait a minute, you need to know that the problem, the problem is sin and evil and death. And so Jesus, as he brings this meal, this meal of liberation, this meal that was typically all about being set free he grabs a hold of this meal and he infuses it with this whole other meaning of saying, wait a minute, I'm going to be what establishes the new covenant. And just as the Passover was initiated, inaugurated by a slain lamb, so too will this new movement. I am, Jesus is saying that he is the Passover lamb that was slain to set them free. To, to liberate them, to save them from sin and from death. And so as we gather together as a community and we share this meal together, as we, we take the bread and we break it, and as we, we drink the cup together, we are declaring to ourselves and to the world that we are a people who need to be saved. And I realize that is not a popular thing to declare in our particular time and place in the world. I, I can think of so many different times where, where something is not going right. Even if I know I'm just like doing it wrong, it could be something going on in my life. I'm working on something or I'm trying to make something or I'm cooking or whatever it is. And someone will come in and offer some advice 
Just say, hey, actually, you know, have you thought you're kind of doing it wrong? That's not going to get you the results you want to get. And my immediate response, I don't know if any of you can relate to this, but my immediate response is not, hmm, that's really good advice. I should probably start doing it that way. No, what's, what's the response most of us have? We double down, right? No, no, I'm, I'm going to keep going this way. In fact, I'm pretty sure that this is the best way. And even though I was beginning to question whether or not it was a good idea or not, now I'm convinced it was a good idea. That is so true for our culture. It's so true just for us. And so when we come to the communion table, essentially we come to this realization that we cannot save ourselves. We, we come to the communion table, we acknowledge that we are a mess, we are caught up in sin and death, and we are enslaved to it. And that we need Jesus to save us. That we need him to liberate us, to set us free. Because we can't do it through our own means and through our own strength. I mean, the radical thing is that the symbol for revolution within the Christian world is not a fist up in the air. It is not some sort of weapon like a gun or a sword. Rather, it is a lamb that was slain. So as we gather together at the communion table, we remember and we acknowledge that there was a lamb that was slain for us, Jesus Christ. And our hope and our, any freedom that we have from sin, from death, comes only through him, not through our own achievements. So if you have a cup, I invite you to get it out right now. We're going to share in this meal together. We're going to reflect on our, our need to be saved. Essentially, Jesus gives us a new Passover, a new exodus, and invites us into a new creation. Now, here's one of the things that's incredibly important, and I just want to say this real quick. Because while it begins with an acknowledgement that we are enslaved to sin and to death, this is not purely some sort of personal, individual thing that goes on in our hearts and lives. It is personal in the sense that it requires a personal response from us. I mean, you don't, you don't get to inherit being a Christian. It doesn't matter what your parents believe. And you don't get to suddenly automatically become a Christian because you show up to church or because you listen to the right kind of podcast. When we talk about being a Christian, it is surrendering your life and turning it over and just saying, Jesus, I give my life to you. I want to, you are the master leader and teacher. I, I want to follow you. I want my life to look and reflect the way that you live. And in doing so, we begin to work towards something we'll just simply call new creation, which is this hope this thing that we long for where God makes all things new, where, where the sin and evil that has so corrupted and just gotten its hands, its roots, its, its, its claws into every part of our existence, we're seeing those things removed and restored back to what they were truly supposed to be. And so for us as Christians, this should lead us and drive us into the world to live as a witness to the one who has truly saved us not a salvation that comes through our own effort and works, not a salvation that comes through violence, not a salvation that comes through us uh, getting everything right and being incredibly smart or achieving incredible levels of success, but rather a salvation that comes through the God who took on human flesh, lived amongst us, whose body was given and whose blood was poured out, the lamb that was slain, that we would be saved.
There's a reading I want to do together as a community uh, as we enter into communion. I'll read this first part, and then uh, the words will be up on the screen for all of us to read together. After that, we'll take a few minutes to be quiet. And then, similar to our week, previous week, we will take time to share communion together, and we're going to do it slow, kind of step by step. Because as much as this is a personal thing, this is also a communal thing. We do it together. Let's read this. The table of bread is now to be made ready. It is the table of company with Jesus and all who love him. It is the table of sharing with the poor of the world and with whom Jesus identified himself. It is the table of communion with the earth in which Christ became incarnate. So come to this table, you who have much faith and you who would like to have more. You who have been here often and you who have, been here, have, have not been here for a long time. You who have, been try, who have tried to follow Jesus and you who have failed. Come, it is Christ who invites us to meet him here. Let's read this second part together. Loving God, through your goodness, we have this bread and wine to offer, which has come forth from the earth. And human hands have made. May we know your presence in the sharing, so that we may know your touch and presence in all. We celebrate the life that Jesus has shared among his community through us and share with him now. Made one in Christ and one with each other, we offer these gifts and with them ourselves a single living act of praise. Amen. Let's take a few seconds to reflect, to pray, and say thank you to the God who saved us. The body given. Let's open it up. First, take the bread. I invite you to break it. The body of Christ given for you. Let's eat together. Let's open up our cups together. The blood of Christ poured out for you. Let's take and drink together. Amen. Amen.